one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey, Jim, just as we thought we wouldn't have much to talk about this week, we have enough agenda items for at least four podcasts. Viewers will be delighted to know that we don't propose to do that. We're going to cut it back to what we consider to be the most salient. There's been tons of economic data, all of which is is terribly interesting and informative. I know that you're going to mention the Irish unemployment data, European Eurozone unemployment data generally, as well as Eurozone GDP. Lots of interesting stuff there. For our Irish audience, there has been data on new car sales. And I invite you to say a little bit about that. Uh, further afield, we've got some factory activity data, manufacturing uh, survey data from disparate economies, not least the US and Switzerland. And I might mention that. There's all sorts of things going on in commodity markets. They're all over the place, mostly up it has to be said, following on the trends that we talked about before, rendering the task of central banks even more complicated than it otherwise was. And we've got, for example, wheat markets going up today after falling after yet another drone, Russian drone strike on Odessa grain facilities. And I think that merits a mention as well. In terms of the UK economy, I think the biggest news this week has been about house prices and I'll talk about that once Jim has started, has finished doing what he's going to do with the European and Irish data. So, Jim, let's hand this straight over to you. And perhaps you could draw out the highlights of some of those things that I mentioned there in the intro. OK, Chris, if I might start on what's happening in labour markets, um, we have spoken numerous times and central banks are obsessed with the tightness of labour market. We got more data this week from the Eurozone showing the tightness of labour market persists. 
Uh, there was a decline of 62,000 in unemployment across the euro area in June, a 6.4% rate of unemployment for the third consecutive month, which is the lowest since the euro was created back in 1999. Um, France has a 7.1% rate, Italy 74 which is the lowest since April 2009. Um, Spain is at 11.7%, which is the lowest in 15 years. And youth unemployment still high, but down to 13.8% of the labour market. So across the euro area, there is an ongoing story of strong demand for labour, um, upward pressure on wages, which obviously feeds into how the European Central Bank views the world. So labour markets continue to, I guess, defy gravity because given everything we've gone through over the last um, 18 months with interest rates, commodity prices, inflation and so on, labour markets remaining remarkably resilient. Uh, the Irish unemployment data out today, um, 111,900 people unemployed. That's up 100 from the same month last year. The unemployment rate is at 4.1%. The last time we spoke about Irish unemployment, the rate was at 3.8%. But every month, the Central Statistics Office tends to revise those rates uh, because it gets new data on labour force participation particularly. So the unemployment rate at 4.1% is the lowest on record. Okay, so a slight revision from the 3.8%, which was, uh, I guess, reported incorrectly in some senses so it's an ongoing story as i say of tight labor markets um, for businesses the challenge is obviously retention and recruitment and upper pressure on wages that's particularly feeding into service sector activities which in turn is feeding into the narrative that central banks um, in the uk the united states and europe have been going on about and acting on the interest rate front to address. So that's the labour market story. Um, we had Eurozone GDP for the second quarter. Um, it increased by 0.3% quarter on quarter, uh, which certainly stronger than expected and certainly you know, removes the Eurozone from a position of technical recession. Uh, the German economy was flat. The French economy up by a half of 1%, Spain up by 0.4%, and Italy declined by 0.3%. So, uh, again, feeding into this story about uh, what worries the European Central Bank, growth is just, okay, it's weak, there's no doubt about that, but it is proving quite resilient in the face of those challenges. Um, in Ireland, we got, in the final quarter of last year, negative growth but it was revised or it was it was marked up to zero percent growth okay but uh technically it contracted slightly um it contracted again in the first quarter of the year by 2.8 percent so technically as we've spoken about irish gdp went into recession but in the second quarter the initial estimate, and it's just an estimate, we don't get any breakdown, so I can't talk to you about what's happening, modified domestic demand, but GDP expanded by 3.3% during the quarter. So technically, the GDP recession ending here. I guess my summation would be that given the interest rate increases, given all of the global headwinds, this is a Remarkable performance by Ireland, but the euro area generally 
you know, holding up reasonably well. And as I've said, the labor market pressures there will certainly feed into the narrative um, that central banks are pushing. So the tightening ain't finished yet, it would appear. And I think it was today or maybe yesterday we got uh, some uh, second rank labor market data from the state. It's called the ADP survey. And that was very strong and much stronger than expected. So again, continuing that narrative of tight labor markets. The consensus on the US economy over the last few days has visibly shifted. People, we've talked about this endlessly through the first half of this year, starting with forecasts from entities such as the IMF and indeed lots of others saying that a US recession was inevitable. And the consensus has shifted to saying, well, it isn't. And uh, it's more mixed now. Some people still expect something of a recession, but if the, if there is one in their numbers, it isn't a particularly deep one, and they're not holding that forecast with any great conviction. That's been mirrored in a shift, a discernible shift, amongst forecasters for Wall Street, for the stock US stock market. A lot of people, really on the back of those economic recession forecasts, were very pessimistic about the US equity market through the second half of this year going into next That's visibly shifted as well in recent days. People uh, who were previously quite bearish, quite pessimistic about the US stock market, becoming cautiously more optimistic. It's always interesting to see these shifts and always then to see how the market reacts. And lo and behold, the market, since all these people turn more optimistic, the market has gone down. Not a lot, um, but it has begun August on a weak footing and there, there are lots of reasons for that, which we may or may not have time to go into. The obsession with economic forecasters in the United States is about the landing for the US economy. I hate that term. Um, economies don't land, markets don't land, soft, hard or, or whatever. They, they just do what they do. And I think landing implies some kind of equilibrium, steady state that economies are never in. We're always wondering what will happen next because we know that the current state of the economy, if it has landed, it's not going to stay there for very long. So I think the use of that term landing is quite inappropriate, but it persists. And now the consensus, as I say, has shifted to this much vaunted soft landing. And there is one uh, ancient strategist on Wall Street, a guy called Eddie Ardini, who agrees with me that the word landing isn't necessarily the right way to describe things. And he just says it's going to be no landing. And I think that's the right way to think about it. The uh, all-important US manufacturing survey uh, came out yesterday, and that showed that they're still in contraction, but it improved from the previous month. So manufacturing is still soft in the United States, but it's less soft than it was. So that's consistent with the idea that things aren't quite as bad as we previously thought. So, So that's good news. Manufacturing worldwide is weak. It has to be said here in the UK where I sit. I mentioned in my intro the Swiss factory survey that was published just in the last few hours. That was at its lowest since 2009. Manufacturing is important, but it's not as important as it was particularly to developed markets like Switzerland, like the United States, like the UK, because they're much smaller parts of the economy than they used to be. But they are important bellwethers. So it's it's still the case that manufacturing is weak, but doesn't seem to be getting any weaker than it has been. The thing, the one piece of economic data that has been out this week that really caught the eye was on UK house prices. 
They're now falling at the fastest year-over-year rate since 2009. Uh, One of the building societies, well, it's a bank these days, published its number for house prices in the most recent month, showing a 3.8% fall year-on-year. The, the another building society previously reported it as minus 2.8. So house prices are falling in the UK, not off a cliff. This isn't a hard landing, if you do want to use that horrible term, but it, it is definitely a weak housing market. And one statistic within the raft of numbers that was published by this financial institution was that a first-time buyer in the UK, on average earnings in the UK, will now be devoting 43% of his or her take-home pay to their mortgage. That's quite a number, isn't it, Jim? It certainly is. Absolutely. And I think that tells us what will happen next to the uh, housing market in the UK, given just how expensive a mortgage is. Uh, We have a Bank of England rate decision later on this week, um, which most people expect them to put rates up yet again. My takeaway from that, reading the UK economy as I do, the housing market in particular, is that if they do raise rates again, it will be a mistake. We can argue about whether or not the Fed is doing the right thing or the ECB is doing the right thing. We've got our views about that, which we have previously expressed. But I do think that there's enough weakness around in the UK economy generally and the housing market in particular, which will eventually affect everything for them to take a pause. I don't know what you think about that, Jim. Yeah, I mean, we, we've had this discussion numerous times about the drivers of house prices. And uh, I suppose the answer is we don't know, but interest rates are clearly influential. And uh, we've seen in most housing markets around the world, there has been a response to the interest rate tightening. Uh, but nothing like the sort of response you might have expected, given the remarkable magnitude of the rate increases we've seen in an 18 month period. Jim, there are two bits of Irish news stroke data that I wanted to ask you about that I'm interested in in particular. I know that you've taken a look at new car sales numbers, so I'd be grateful for anything that you have to say about those, what that might tell us about wider consumer demand, consumer sentiment in Ireland. And I was going to ask you about Fingal County Council. Have you seen the news regarding their uh, decisions for Dublin Airport? I have indeed, yes. Um... And IBEC this morning came out with a press statement uh, protesting uh, Fingal's decision to uh, order Dublin Airport, as I understand it. Do correct me if I'm wrong. But essentially, this is about uh, an instruction to restrict nighttime flights going into Dublin Airport. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's been massive... Uh, opposition in that part of Dublin from residents about noise levels at the airport, um, about the extension to the runway and the pos- you know, the new runway and so on. So I guess the council is responding to that. What, what is the story at airports like uh, Cardiff or Heathrow? Are there many flights at night? Well, Cardiff Airport is nationalised by the Welsh government because there are so few flights. It's not an economically viable entity. There are some late night flights. I know that the Ryanair flight from Cardiff to Dublin sometimes goes out at about 11 o'clock at night. I don't think there's anything after that. So it's not an issue in South Wales at all. Uh, Aeroplane noise is not an issue in South Wales because they've completely messed up the the travel industry out of out of the Welsh economy. It's actually all migrated to Bristol Airport, but that, that's a, a long and not terribly interesting story. For me, the, the more interesting city, of course, is London. 
having lived in London for many years on different occasions over the last number of decades, I can attest to what aeroplane noise can do to a community. Um, I've lived underneath the flight path uh, for aeroplanes. Actually, I once lived in an apartment where the uh, planes just overhead would come down to the point where they lowered their undercarriage. And when an aeroplane lowers its undercarriage, it has to rev the engines a bit because of the uh, uh, drag, I guess, that's produced by the wheels coming down, slows the plane down a bit. So the engine noise increases and you get the noise from the undercarriage coming down just above you. And it's horrendous. And there have been many a protest, particularly in the western suburbs of London leading into Heathrow. One of the extraordinary things about Heathrow is that it's in exactly the wrong place because air because of the prevailing winds, aircraft have to traverse the whole of London, central London usually, uh, in order to get to Heathrow to land into the wind. It would be much better given the prevailing winds if the airport was on the other side of London. But that's just an accident of history. But nobody seriously uh, takes issue with restricting any further the nighttime flights in, into and out of Heathrow. There are restrictions. They're not supposed to land for a few hours in the early hours of the morning. But of course, planes arrive late. Planes arrive early. I, in uh, Sydney, an airport that I know reasonably well for all sorts of strange reasons, I have been circling Sydney Airport for quite some time on a flight that has arrived early because they just don't allow them to uh, land uh, before a certain time early in the morning. So different uh, jurisdictions in different parts of the world do this differently. There are restrictions, but my sense of it from places like London and Sydney is the restrictions aren't uh, particularly binding they they do exist and so you know you hope at two three o'clock in the morning there aren't too many planes landing and there aren't uh, but economic considerations trump uh, citizens uh, right to a good night's sleep it strikes me in, in most cases and ibec this morning issued a, a press statement protesting fingal's decisions decision saying that ireland relies so much on air traffic for its trade an awful lot of freight is carried into and out of Dublin Airport and, of course, the all-important tourism market. So there's citizens versus the economy here. And that's a tricky one because, as I say, having lived under a very noisy flight path, I know how horrendous this can be. As an economist, I can attest to the importance of uh, air travel, uh, both in terms of freight, uh, exports, imports and tourism. So this is, this is a really tough nut to crack. Um, but I think internationally, this is a long-winded answer to your question, I think the, the needs of the economy usually trump the needs of the citizens who live near an airport. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So do you think Fingal County Council was right or wrong? Gosh, that's a tough one, Jim. I'm glad I don't live near an airport anymore, at least a, a noisy one. As a, an ordinary citizen resident, I think that they were right to look after their constituents. That's their remit. But somebody's going to have to take a decision based on the needs of the economy. And this illustrates every single economic decision that you ever make about anything in life. And that's a trade-off. And where do the costs and benefits lie? Um, there might be a, a, a case for somehow compensating the residents for, the, for their noisy night times. There might be a case for offering to retrofit their houses for noise insulation. There might be all sorts of solutions. I, I am no expert to this, but it involves that classic decision, which a politician eventually is confronted with, well, every single day of his or her life. It's a trade-off. What, and what would you, if you were asked to decide this trade-off, Jim, you threw the question at me, I ducked it, what would you do? Well, I visit my brother in San Francisco quite a lot and he lives very close to San Francisco International Airport and, you know, there's a lot of flight paths right over his house and, in fact, about quarter past six in the evening as I've occasionally enjoyed a beer in his back garden, the Aer Lingus flight to Dublin passes very close overhead um, and flights go through all night, not as many during the night time, but incredibly noisy, um, certainly would wake you up from your sleep and so on. So at the end of the day, um, I, I think Fingal County Council is probably correct in a sense that restricting flights during certain hours of the night does make sense from a purely human point of view. I, I think our, our economy has expanded dramatically over the last number of years. Um, and I know trade is growing, but um, most of the trade in physical goods comes via the ports and particularly Dublin port in any event. So, I, I mean, I, I don't see this as something that will seriously damage Ireland's economic growth potential into the future. So on balance, um, I think one has to take the human consideration here and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, economics should be all about creating as good a quality life as possible for as many people as possible. And uh, having flights over your house during a nighttime period uh, does undermine quality life. I a little bit like what you've been saying about Heathrow. Um, I would have argued 10 years ago that we should um, not expand Dublin Airport and that we should build a new airport in the Midlands and that it would connect to the major cities via uh, a Stansted Express type train network. Um, but, you know, the, the notion that we continue to just drive the expansion of Dublin Airport, um, it's very hard, awkward to get to, um, certainly from many parts of the country. It is incredibly busy. Traffic congestion is pretty epic up there. So the notion that we just continue to expand, expand, expand that airport um, doesn't make a lot of sense in some ways. So relocate it. Relocate it or build another one. Or build another one, absolutely. Yes, and uh, of course that involves the whole discussion about public sector infrastructure projects. Maybe this is one that could be, 
it be a public-private partnership, or even um, if you just hand it over to Michael O'Leary and allow him to build and operate an airport. There's an interesting suggestion. Yeah, well, when I suggested once that we build an international airport near Mullingar, uh, which coincidentally is close, is where Michael O'Leary lives, he uh, responded to me that um, it was totally unsuited because of weather and mist and fog. You mentioned Stansted. Uh, there's a lot of people who say that uh, Stansted is, is also located in one of the worst parts of the UK for that very reason. It's one of the foggiest parts of the UK. Airports are located often in Britain where there used to be old RAF um, stations during the war. And Heathrow has that sort of uh, ancestry as well. And where our airports are located are generally as a result of historic accident rather than somebody sitting down with a blank sheet of paper or a blank map of the country and saying, well, where is the optimal location from all these different angles, both the needs of our citizens and the needs for the airport to be as not weather dependent as, as, as possible. So uh, our, our history on both these islands of being able to successfully do these big infrastructure projects doesn't lead me to think that this uh, is going to be resolved any time soon. And of course, we wish the residents of Fingal a good night's sleep at all possible times. Jim, moving on to a different transport uh, topic. I know that you've been looking at new car sales. Yeah, we got the end July new car registrations um, earlier this week from the Society of the Irish Motor Industry. And July is a very significant month because since we split the plates here, um, July is now the second busiest month in terms of car registrations. So car sales, very strong during the month of July, um, 27,148 new cars registered, up 23.9%. Um, petrol, up 27.2%. Diesel, down 4.5%. But wait for it, electric, up by 52.5%. Um, I stress that is coming from a very low base, okay? But it just shows you uh, the the growing electrification of the fleet. So that's one month's data, good month. But if you look at the first seven months of the year, um, over 104,600 new cars registered, up 20.1%. Petrol up strongly. Um, diesel is under pressure. But the electric in the first um, seven months, 18,458. That's up 65.2%. And in the first seven months of the year, um, electric had 17.6% of market sales. Okay. And the importance of all of this is the climate change obligation, which Ireland has, the international obligations. Um, you know, the uh, Paris Accord reduced greenhouse gas emissions by 51.5% by 2030. Um, and transport emissions to be reduced by 50% by 2030. And the, the key way that policymakers around Europe are approaching this is through the promotion of the electrification of the fleet. Okay, and hence we are seeing um, strong growth in the sales of electric vehicles. However, it is important to put this into context. I think 1.6% of the cars on the Irish road at the moment are electric. Okay. And One of the, the things that uh, yeah. strikes me about uh, the UK's response to all of this is that electric vehicle sales are up in the UK as well. And I listened to an operator of motorway service stations the other day 
being asked about charging points. And of course, on motorway service stations, just as petrol and diesel stations are important, so are electric vehicle points. And he was talking about how his company had installed loads and loads of charging points at these service stations, but the infrastructure for supplying power to these charging points just isn't there. Yeah, it's not. They can't start laying the cables. They're not responsible for generating the electricity and transporting it to these points. And the cabling just isn't isn't there. And nobody seems to know how to get it there. Well, I assume from an, in an engineering way we know how to get it there, but there doesn't appear to be the political will, capital, decision making processes necessary for this to happen. And this is a more general problem about how we're going to to get a get the power generation up. If our fleets do eventually go electric, if our houses eventually go electric, we're going to have to generate an awful lot more electricity than we do at the moment. Uh, That's going to be a huge revenue loss for the Exchequer in both Ireland and in the UK and anywhere else this takes place. So where are those tax revenues going to come from that are going to disappear once petrol and diesel starts to materially shrink? And who's going to lay in all these power lines? Because the actual distribution of the electricity, which is not something that attracts many headlines and and indeed much interest, because it's an engineering issue, but it's a massive, massive problem. It's a massive problem in the United States. Getting new electricity lines laid in the United States runs into all of those planning objections that we know from the housing market. So it's a real problem. Yeah, no, it it is a real problem. And if, if you look at the target is by 2030, every car sold in Ireland will be electric or plug in hybrid electric vehicle okay that target also is that there would be 845,000 um cars on the road either ev or plug-in electric okay uh or sorry the plug-in hybrid electric vehicle phev but the, the the point is that there's a lot of challenge to this number one is the charging issue you talk about uh we have nothing like enough charging points just over 1700 public charging points and they are starting to become very congested. There is the issue about the grid. Will it be able to cope with the sort of demand that's coming down the tracks without massive investment? The answer is no. But there is a more fundamental problem. The average age of the Irish car is now 9.3 years. Okay, so there's a lot of cars 10 years and older on the roads. And with cars, you know, with the development of technology, the older cars are generally the more polluting they are. So the challenge here to achieve our um, emissions reductions is to try and get as many environmentally friendly cars on the road as possible. But telling somebody driving a 15-year-old car to buy an EV is mad because 15-year-old car worth nothing. EVs are very, very expensive. So there is a massive financial gap to bridge to get people from older polluting cars into EVs and there is a a danger now I think that the sort of surge we've seen in EV sales over the last couple of years there's a lot of first movers there people who can actually afford to do it and the, the danger now is that over the next couple of years it starts to level off. There's been a huge foray about environmental policies generally here in the UK connected to this, connected to North Sea oil and gas over the last few days. And I want to cover that in some detail in uh, our next podcast, actually, so because we're running out of time on this one. And it's such an important topic that I want to do it justice. So, Jim, shall we call it there and yes, um, speak next time? Great, Chris. Thank you.
You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.